Okay, our goal for Lent and Easter is very simple. To simply proclaim the whole story of what God has done. The whole story is called the kerygma, this Greek word that means proclamation. So it's not a matter of merely telling a story, right? We tell stories to each other all the time. This is a proclamation of the story as though it is a proclamation of something incredible, something good, right? The good news of the gospel that is meant to lead us into a place of experiencing life differently, of looking at life differently, of thinking differently, of living differently. That's the goal here. Uh, And so far, we've spoken about the first two parts of the kerygma, the goodness of creation, looking at at who God is in his majesty and his grandeur, the vastness of his creation, the incredible, like, amount of what he creates and how, how great he is. And then, of course, we looked at the uniqueness of being made in the image and likeness of God, the human person, his favorite creature, the one that he loves the most, called by him, invited by him, to to act like him, to become like him, this incredible plan that he has, not just that he loves us the most, but that he wants us to become like him, to become godly, this incredible, incredible plan that he has. But then we looked, too, at sin and its consequences, and we see how sin ruins everything, how because of our first parents' sin, when when they commit this act of rebellion against God, determining for themselves what is good and what is evil, when they commit this act of rebellion, They sell the entire human race into a kind of spiritual slavery to the powers that that are holding us captive, sin and death, Satan, right? This creature that God makes who is more powerful than us, who deceives us into thinking that we can find happiness apart from God and how this ruins everything so that now we're in this place of, of spiritual slavery, like being in the hands of a human trafficker who just wants to use us and abuse us over and over and over again, who keeps us from receiving the promises that God wants us to have. We call it the bad news, right? The horrible, tragic news of what sin does in the world. So that St. Paul can say, all men are under the power of sin, like with a capital S. We are held captive by sin and death. St. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 23, he says, the wages of sin is death. Death was not part of God's original plan, but because of sin, we cut ourselves off from the source of the one who gives us life. And the only natural result then is death. So this week we want to ask the question, begin asking the question, how does God respond to this? How does God respond to rebellion when his favorite creature, the one that he loves the most, the one that he has incredible plans for, how does he respond when that creature rebels against him? Now, this is, this is something that we got to be really, really sort of careful about because when we look at the Bible, which is what we're going to do, uh, our tendency is to think of God differently between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Our tendency is to think of God as having this, this reputation or this, this disposition of just being angry and looking for vengeance and punishing his children uh, in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, he changes. That's his reputation. But in fact, what we're going to see as we look at the scriptures, we're going to see something completely different. And I, I hope anyway that it's, it's kind of surprising for you. For example, we can look at, at the fall itself. In chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, what's the first thing that God does after the fall? Right? He comes to them. He acknowledges their sin. He starts talking about the consequences of sin. But then the first thing that he actually does for them is he makes clothing for them. He provides for them. Right? When they commit the sin, they, they experience shame for the first time, and so they kind of make some makeshift clothing for themselves. But then God comes along, and he provides for them better clothing so that they can be in each other's presence still without experiencing shame in the same kind of way. So God's first response to sin, 
to rebellion is to provide. Because, after all, we are still his favorite creatures. And we're going to see this. We're, so what we're going to do here is we're going to try to go through the entire Bible uh, as fast as we possibly can, um, within reason. Right? So we're, going to, we're just going to fly right through it. So, so in Genesis chapter 12, everything zooms in on this one person. His, his name is Abram, which means, uh, that name means exalted father. From there, God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of nations, which reveals the mission that God has for Abraham to be not just an exalted father of like one or two kids, but to be a father of nations, which is something that we, right? There's that old song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons, right? So like we know, we know this ultimately how it came to play out. But anyway, when God comes to Abraham, he makes a set of promises to him. He promises him that he's going to give him and his descendants land, right? This is where we get the phrase, the promised land. He promises that he's going to give them land, that Abraham is going to have descendants as many as the stars in the sky, which after we've seen the number of the stars in the sky, right, maybe that puts it into a, a completely different perspective. And then he promises that because of Abraham's faith in God, the entire world is going to know God's blessing, right? So this triple promise, land, descendants, and worldwide blessing, all coming through this one person, Abraham, whose mission from God is to be the father of nations. It's this incredible promise. There's a problem, though. The problem, if you know the story, right, is that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, don't have any children. They're infertile, and they're getting old. Sarah is 90 years old. So it seems like God is making a set of promises that he's either not able to keep or he's just refusing to keep. It's, it's a little confusing, actually, for, for everybody involved. But then in Genesis chapter 21, something incredible happens. Abraham receives some visitors from the Lord who tell him that his wife Sarah is going to conceive even in her old age. So at the ripe old age of 90, she gives birth to a son and names him Isaac. It's a miracle, right? And, and probably not a super pleasant miracle. Pleasant in, in many deep ways, but, you know, for maybe for some of our older uh, ladies here, you can imagine giving birth at, a, at an older age, right? Like this is... What, what's going on here, right? But nonetheless, like this is God's way of working things out. It seems like he's forgotten or it seems like he's making promises that he can't keep. And yet, when it seems like things are most hopeless, what does he do? He provides. But then in Genesis chapter 22, he makes a really strange request of Abraham. If you read Genesis 22 this week, you know that God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only one, the one whom you love, and I want you to bring him to the mountain that I show you and offer him there as a sacrifice to me. God asks Abraham to kill his son, which that in itself is a really strange request. But then it's even more strange when you understand like, no, God, you made promises. It seems like you're going to keep the promises. But now like there's, there, there isn't any other son. So if, if, if you have me kill this one, it seems right. But Abraham, for some reason, somehow is able to trust in God. And so he brings his son out to the mountain. He ties him up and he's about to slay him. And right as he's about to slay him, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, no, don't do it, right? The Lord has seen your faith. The Lord has seen your trust in him. And because of this, I don't want you to harm your son, but instead, because of this, I'm going to double down and tell you that I'm going to bring about a fulfillment of all of these promises for you. And then from there, Abraham turns and he sees a ram caught in a thicket. And he sees that this is the sacrifice, actually, that the Lord wants. And so he names the mountain Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord provides, right? God provides the sacrifice ultimately that he wants to be sacrificed. And then from there, the story continues. So Abraham has his son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons named Esau and Jacob. Jacob uh, is favored by the Lord. And, and so anyway, the, the promise kind of flows through Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. 
The, the favorite of these 12 sons is Joseph. Not, I mean, we know that parents don't actually have favorites, right? We know this, right? But nonetheless, the favorite of those sons is Joseph. Joseph's 11 brothers hate that Joseph is the favorite. They hate him. And so they make a plan to kill him. But then a couple of them convince them that that'd be a bad idea. So they end up selling him off into slavery in Egypt. Right? It seems like, again, it seems like the Lord is doing some really strange things with this family. But nonetheless, Joseph is sold off. But as Joseph is sold off and, and seemingly forgotten and left for dead, the Lord provides for him this ability to interpret dreams. In other words, the Lord is at work even through this messy plan of a family life that's going on here in the Bible. And, and because of this inter- ability to interpret dreams, Joseph is able to predict that there's going to be a seven-year famine in the land all around. And so they're able to prepare for the famine, which benefits, of course, the Egyptians because they know that they they have food stored up. But it also benefits the people around, which includes Israel and his sons. And so the brothers of Joseph eventually go to Joseph because they have to get food from him. And there's this incredible, like, beautiful family reunion that takes place. Their joy and weeping and, and tears and all these things. Eventually, they go back and they get Israel and they move all of the Israelites to Egypt where they live out their days in joy and in peace, knowing the favor of Pharaoh and knowing the favor of God. This is how the book of Genesis ends. And then the book of Exodus begins by talking about how a new king arose after many years, a new king who did not know Joseph. In other words, he had forgotten the incredible benefit that the Israelite people had brought to the Egyptians. And instead, what happens, the Pharaoh sees the the Hebrew people, the Israelites, multiplying and begins to fear their number, begins to fear their potential power, and so, rather than being friendly with them, begins to mistreat them and force them into manual labor and enslaves them. He eventually even begins killing all of their babies that are born and throwing them into the Nile River. God sees this, of course, right? And this is where Moses comes into play. And the Lord speaks to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, Moses, you need to go to Pharaoh. You need to tell Pharaoh that he's got to let my people go. So Moses does this. Of course, we know that Pharaoh is hard of heart. He's stubborn. He refuses to let them go. And then this is where the plagues come in, right? Where the river turns into blood and then there's like flies, there's gnats, there's locusts, there's a pestilence, there's hail, uh, there are frogs everywhere. There's, 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 uh, the sun goes away and there's just complete darkness so that they're bumping into everything and they can't see anything. And all the while, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. He's stubborn. He refuses to let them go on God's terms. So then finally, In Exodus chapter 12, 11 and 12 and 13, God reveals to Moses, he says, I have a plan. I'm going to provide for my people in such a way that not only will they let you go off to offer sacrifices, but they will beg you to leave. And so he tells Moses, this is what you're to do. You are to tell all of the Israelite families to take a lamb, a lamb without blemish, to slaughter it, to eat its flesh, roasted whole, to eat its flesh, and to take the blood from the lamb and to sprinkle it on the doorposts. Because tonight... I will send the angel of death into the land. And the angel of death is going to slaughter all of the firstborn in the land of man and beast alike, with one exception. The exception is that those houses that have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, the angel will pass over those houses and spare those houses. We call this the Passover lamb of God, right? And this is exactly what happens. He tells the people, the people take their lamb, they slaughter it, they roast it whole, they eat its flesh, and they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And that night, the angel of death goes and slaughters all of the firstborn in the land 
with the exception of those who have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. He spares them. And then what happens? The Israel or the Egyptians wake up in the middle of the night to their horror and they see the power of God, how he has been so powerful and so much in favor of his people that they are sheer, they're, they're, they're in a place of sheer terror. And so they beg the Israelites, please go. We see your God is powerful. We see that your God favors you. Please go and take these, take these clothes with you. Take this gold with you. Just go, please get out of here. And they go, right? And then as they're going, they run into the Red Sea. This is where the Red Sea splits in two. They walk across on dry land. And as they, just as they cross, the sea comes crashing down on the Egyptian forces that were pursuing them and kills all the Egyptians that were pursuing them. And it's this incredible thing where they sing this great song to the Lord, horse and chariot he has cast into the sea, marveling at God's power, at God's favor, at God's providence, the way that he provides for his people even when things seem most bleak. And then from there, from uh, Exodus chapter 16 all the way through Joshua chapter 3, the people are in the desert. They're in the desert for 40 years. And God continues to provide for them. He provides for them food. He gives them quail, meat to eat. And then every day when they wake up, there's this manna, this bread-like thing that's on the ground, and they eat the bread. He provides for them miraculous food from heaven. He provides for them water in a miraculous way. They're, they're thirsty. And so he tells Moses, here's a rock. Hit the rock with your staff and out will come water. And Moses does it, and water miraculously flows from this rock so that the people have something to drink. He provides for them the way of life, the, the law, the Ten Commandments, so that by following the commandments, they can share a good relationship with God who cares for them, who loves them, who provides for them. He provides for them protection from their enemies. These other countries around them are looking and seeing, like, what are these people doing in the desert? And they want to attack them, but the Lord provides protection from those enemies so that they can know his favor, they can know his providence. And then in, in, in Joshua chapter 3 and, and following, the people enter into the promised land, right? The land that God promised to Abraham that he would give to his descendants. Now those very descendants cross over the, the Jordan River into that very land. They break up the land according to the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and uh, from there they demand a king, and God says, okay, fine, you can have a king. So he, get, he provides for them a king and a kingdom. God provides for his people over and over and over and over and over again. It's incredible. And yet at the same time, at the same time, as we see from the entire story, we see that the Passover lamb sets them free from their physical slavery. We see this. It's incredible. But all the while after that, we see that it's clear that they're stuck in this place of spiritual slavery. While they're in the desert, all they do is grumble and complain against the Lord. When he gives them the commandments, while he's, receiving, while he's giving the commandments to Moses, the people are on the bottom of the mountain worshiping a false god. Over and over and over and over again, God's people prove themselves to be hard of heart, rebellious, stuck in spiritual slavery. That line from Paul, the wages of sin is death, it's like it hasn't been written yet, and yet at the same time you can hear it echoing over and over and over again in the Old Testament. While God is so generous, while he provides so much, God's people just refuse to give themselves back to him. They refuse to follow his ways. They continue to rebel over and over and over again. And so what happens actually is that because of their spiritual slavery, they're eventually brought back into physical slavery. The kingdom of Israel, it splits in two. The 10 tribes of the north they're invaded by the Assyrians and they're brought off into exile, the Assyrian exile. 
And later on, the two tribes of the south are invaded by Babylon and they're brought off into the Babylonian exile. God's people received the very land that he promised to give them. And because of their spiritual slavery, because of their stubbornness, they're brought away from that land. The temple, the place where God lives, is destroyed. It's incredibly sad, incredibly tragic. But at the same time, God continues to provide for them. Because all the while, during this time of stubbornness and even during the time of exile, the Lord sends prophets, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, uh, Zechariah, right? These kinds of people. He sends prophets, men, to come into them and to call the people to their, call to their attention these warnings of saying, look, you guys aren't following the Lord. You need to turn around. You need to repent. You need to amend your ways so that God can give his favor to you once again. The people don't do it. And he says, okay, fine. If you're not going to do this, it's going to bring harm to you. The sim- in a similar way for you parents, you understand this. Your, parent, your, your children want to reach and touch the hot stovetop. What do you do? Stop. Don't touch that. It's going to hurt you. This ultimately is the message of the prophets. God sending a warning to his people. If you don't stop, this is going to hurt. And it's going to hurt like hell. They don't listen. And so eventually they're brought off into exile. But the thing is this, that the Lord, when he sends the prophets, they deliver warnings, yes, but the warnings are almost always accompanied by promises of restoration. Because you see, God is a good father and he disciplines his children when they're wayward. He disciplines his children when they're stubborn and hard of heart, yes. But the discipline is not simply because he's angry and he just wants to get back at them. The discipline is always for the purpose of healing and restoration. The discipline is always for the purpose of growth. If you remember, way back on Ash Wednesday, I mentioned that the word salvation, when Paul is writing, the word salvation in Latin has the same root as the word for health. God, more than anything, he doesn't want to just give his children whatever they want. He wants to make them healthy and whole. And so the purpose of the punishment, the purpose of the discipline, it's all for the purpose of restoration, of restoring them, of making them whole. And so he delivers promises through these these prophets talking about how he's going to bring them back into the land, how he's going to restore them to their favored position. The very last prophet of of, of the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi, who writes about 450 years before Jesus comes, 450 BC. And his very last words, the Lord speaks through him and he says, behold, now I'm sending Elijah the prophet before you. He will go before the Lord, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment. And he's going to prepare the people for when that day comes, so that when that day comes, they can be a people fit for the Lord, a people prepared for him. That's how the Old Testament ends. And then there's 450 years of silence from God where there's no official prophecies, at least none in the scriptures. They're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. You can imagine having to wait for 450 years, right? People are living and they're dying. They're living and they're dying. And eventually what happens? A whole bunch of people, most of the people, turn away from the Lord. They just give up. They think that God's forgotten about them, that God's not going to fulfill his promises. And then the Gospels begin. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels, which means good news, but not just any good news. We're talking about life-changing, transformational good news. Specifically, the Gospel of Luke, we're introduced right away to this holy couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. It says that they're a righteous couple, and yet, for some reason, they're infertile. It's meant to remind us of Abraham and Sarah, because they're infertile and getting old. But then this, this miracle, this amazing thing takes place. Zechariah goes into the temple, to the Holy of Holies, this special, unique place. 
And there he meets an angel, and the angel tells him, Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayer, and you and your wife Elizabeth will conceive a son, and you will name him John, and he will be great, for he will go before the Lord to prepare the way for the Lord to come by calling the people to repentance, by bringing a message of salvation to God's people, that the Lord is coming to save his people from their enemies, their enemies being Satan, sin, and death. It's this incredible thing. And then meanwhile, that same angel goes to visit Mary and tells Mary, this young virgin, that she too is going to conceive a child miraculously in spite of her virginity. She's going to receive a ch uh, conceive a child and that child will be great. He will be the son of the Most High and she shall name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This incredible, joyful moment where it seems like something incredible is happening. It's meant to be something that for us, it, it can be a little bit old news sometimes, but it's meant to be something that causes us to just sort of like tune in, right? Like, I, I got to see how this plays itself out. Now we jump all the way towards the end of the Gospels, or no, excuse me, we jump just a couple of chapters ahead and we see John the Baptist as an adult in the desert preaching. What's his message? His message, repent, turn away from your sins. Turn away from your way of thinking and begin to turn toward the Lord and let your way of thinking be formed and pointed toward the Lord God because he's coming, he's coming. And then he sees Jesus coming to him and he points at Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. When he calls him the Lamb of God, it's meant to make us think of the Passover Lamb of the Old Covenant. What does the Passover lamb do? Well, when they eat the flesh of the Passover lamb and they sprinkle its blood on their doorposts, they ultimately are set free from their physical slavery. Now, John is calling Jesus the Lamb of God. So now we jump ahead to the end of the gospel. What do we see at the Last Supper? Jesus takes bread and he says, take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body. We might say, this is my flesh to eat. They had to eat the flesh of the Passover lamb. And now Jesus gives to his disciples his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. And now on the cross, what happens? The soldier pierces his side and outflows what? Blood and water. So that those who wash themselves in the blood of the lamb are set free. Not set free from physical slavery, but set free from a far worse kind of slavery, which is a spiritual slavery. You see this? Jesus, the lamb of God, he gives us his flesh to eat. And he bathes us with his blood so that we can be set free from sin. So that ultimately, sin has no more power over you. To understand that you don't have to sin. You don't have to live in that kingdom anymore. Because he has come to set you free. How does the father respond to sin? How does he respond to the rebellion of his favorite child, his favorite creature? We see from the beginning, he has provided every remedy so that you and I can flourish and have life. And this all comes to its peak when he provides his son, his only one, the one whom he loves as a sacrifice for you and for me. This is how he responds. This is a miracle, a mystery that we have to let ourselves, if we're not excited about this, then we're missing something. God's plan of salvation is so unforeseen. It is so mysterious. And at the same time, it is so incredible. And this is just the beginning. Next week, we'll continue looking at God's response to sin. 
A question for you, just to think about, though. Does this help you understand why we call Jesus the Lamb of God at Mass? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sin of the world. So many of us come to Mass and it's just like this empty ritual. But to understand that this is the very place where Jesus gives us his flesh to eat so that we can be set free. It's the very thing that's meant to liberate us. And so it's something that we ought to long for and hunger for and get rid of anything in our lives that would prevent us from receiving it because it is here that Jesus Christ wants to and does in fact set you free if you're open to it. To know that kind of liberation, to know that kind of joy, the beginning, the beginning of the good news, which will continue next week. To prepare yourself for next week, there are more scripture passages for you to read, which are on the bottom of your outline in, in your, in your uh, bulletin that you can prepare so that when you come and we talk even more about God's incredible response to sin, the gospel can continue or maybe even begin or whatever to explode in your life and cause a complete transformation in you.